This is a pre-recorded version of the WTKA Roundtable <laughs> on WTKA, unsurprisingly, 9 o'clock Thursdays. It is recorded, however, so if you call in, no one will answer. Here on the Michigan Insider Sports Talk 1050 WTKA online at WTKA.com. And the boys are back in town. The MGO Blog Roundtable crew in the building. Craig has gotten his tennis preview out of the way. So we don't have to, you know, we have to upset and frustrate our good friend Brian Cook, who joins us now. BC, good morning. How are you? Why would that frustrate? <laughs> because Craig, Craig, he, you know what? We didn't even go off on a, on an on a tangent that it takes a, a little bit of time to kind of catch up to, right? So it may maybe wouldn't have been as frustrating for you this well, morning, Brian. But away from football, away from basketball, away from hockey, you know that that tends to be outside of the or in the frustration territory. Brian plays tennis. You don't play tennis. That's right. That's right. You are a tennis not, player. Not well, but well, he's uh, Brian is learning and he's made big strides. And he's and he's taking it seriously, and so yeah, he'll get there. And we are we are here to restore the the sanity of of Seth Fisher, who just got done. For uh, I mean, you revisited one of the most frustrating <laughs> games I think any of us have have witnessed in all of our time following and loving Michigan, and that's that playoff game. I never want to see it again in life. But since you just broke it down, I, I think it warrants uh, some further discussion because it is a, a meaningful conversation to have talking about Sharon being the full OC and what we might be able to extrapolate uh, from that game and kind of project over the course of the, uh, the upcoming season. Yeah, well, what happened here actually is my wife went to Paris for a week, so I went feral, which uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I should have a sign over me right now that says, she absolutely did not allow me out of the house this way. But, um, yeah, so what I, I, what I did is I sat down on my computer and I was like, I, I've got some time to, like, review film. This is, like, my best. And then that was the only thing that Brian hadn't gotten to because I think he's already charted the Purdue game. So I did the TCU game and uh, uh. <laughs> got to relive it again. But now I understand. And now it's passed. And now I, I, have, I have the insight. I got what I needed out of there, and now I can move on. This, is, this happens every offseason. I did the 2020 Michigan State game one offseason, too. Like, I, I asked for this. Mm -hmm. well, you know, it, I felt like – tell me if you – if this showed up in the game. I felt like it was the most vivid example of the year of maybe the two-coordinator piece not having the, the kind of rhythm. Um, you know, the, uh, the best mix. Yeah, I, I saw more disjointedness in that game than, than I think we had seen in any game this I, season between the two coordinators. I think I think so because the situations they got in, they were in passing downs and second down, and they were in running downs and third down often. It was just a, a – a, and so they were kind of – your play calling on third and two should be just like your play calling on uh, – not exactly, but close to your first your play calling on first and ten. It's It's a running down just as much as a passing down. And your play action will work, and the things that you're doing in the running game will work. And if you ha and your second and eight should be a passing down, right? Or second and ten, or second eleven should be a passing down. And what we were doing is running the same script on second and ten as we were on first and ten, and running a different script on third and three than we were on. You know, and it was that was the disjointedness yeah. I found in it. Yeah, for those who don't know the mix. Uh Third down a red zone was Weiss, and then uh, the uh, Sharon was first and second down, obviously between the twenties. Yeah. Uh, so you 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 call the ISO, uh, and it hits, and then it's in the red zone. So now it's Weiss with with the play calling. So it just 
you know, that that rhythm in this game just seemed a bit, you know, yeah. just, just wasn't the flow wasn't there. No, I, I think it probably threw Sharona off a bit. And that's my hope. Right. Is that because when I looked at the and one of the things that I love about what UFR can do is will differentiate between passes and play action passes, um, which are different parts of your playbook, really. Right. Play action plays off of how well your run game is doing. If you just set up the pass, the defense is going to pass rush and they're going to they're going to play pass. Um, so the play action game ha- averaged twenty five yards per play. Okay, and the run run game, including the fifty four yard run to start the thing, averaged four point four yards per play. You have a very large difference. If you take that fifty four yard run out of there and take a couple runs from JJ out of there, it's down into the twos. Okay, it was. The, so their run, interior running game was not effective because TCU, the second they saw run action, were firing down that safety. And when you do that, you can RPO against that or you can just run play action, right? But we have checks for that. I think what happened was Sharon was, when he'd run the check, they'd, he'd hit them with a big play, right? You'd get Ronnie Bell over the top for a touchdown or something. And then you'd go back and be like, okay, now we can run. And TCU was like, no, you can't. We're still going to act this way. And it took until... the. By the time they figured that out, Michigan was down three touchdowns in the second half, and then you just got to throw the ball anyway. Yeah, my, my biggest thing in, in watching it, I want to know what you, you guys think, uh, Craig and, and Brian, um, you know, all leading up to that contest. And we went back and watched so many TCU games. Uh, and I did so with, with both Borges and Vance. And Vance had watched them some during the year. And they, were, they, they all both said, it's a misconception to think that you can just run up the middle on this team. You think you see the bubbles in there, right? Three, three, five, you just bust them in the mouth. Except for, for teams who run it right, for teams who can fit it appropriately, you, you don't get a whole lot up the middle. And the teams that were most successful were the teams that hit the edges. And I remember commenting during the game, like, man, outside and play action, but, but running outside. And they started to have more success as they ran outside, getting JJ involved. In the run game too, those two elements seem to really be sparks for their their running game. Almost felt like that ISO um, was kind of uh, it, it was bo- it was a it was a blessing in that it was a big play, right? That put them right in a scoring position, but it was a curse because it made you think you could run inside if you if you get my meaning there. Well, I mean, Seth's right, and this is something I, I, I had thought it's good to get some confirmation for is that yeah, Michigan hit him over the top, and then they thought. Okay, now they're going to back off, and TCU never did. They had their game plan, which was like, we're going to be maniacally aggressive against the run. And that's how, you know, that flea flicker was open by 20 yards. And I kind of thought that they should run the flea flicker on the next play. <laughs> Just keep, yeah. keep running the flea flicker until the safety stays back and see how long it takes. Um, but yeah, the, and the other thing in that game that really kind of rankled me is that. JJ McCarthy didn't have a called run or a or zone read where he kept until the third quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I understand that you want to keep some miles off the guy's legs against Rutgers and in Indiana, but in a playoff game, like this guy is an established threat and they are selling out up the middle. And, you know, I I just felt like they that was a game that should have been like the Penn State game where he gets eight to ten very impactful carries. And just didn't happen and i i think that they had some thoughts about what they were able to do against tcu's defense and they just weren't fast enough to uh adjust now we should point out that they had a touchdown taken off the board on a really bad review call and then a epically um uh, chaotic fumble on the next play and they also put up 45 points so they figure some things out so like (laughs) It's it's not like this is a game where Michigan puts up 17 right. points and you're like, what happened to the offense? I mean, the costs that TCU endured were just about the same cost that Ohio State endured, but TCU got three touchdowns worth of value on two pick sixes and and that fumble. So the overall ability of the offense to move the ball, even with the struggles on the ground, um, was good. And I think the context of the game makes it feel like the, the offense was more frustrating than it actually was. But yeah, I really agree with that. The uh, uh, 
but I also understands understand Seth's frustration when you look back at the game and you see uh, play action gaining 25, 26 yards of play. And aside from the first big play in the game, Sam's fool's gold play, uh, they, they really weren't able to run the ball particularly well. I wonder how, I mean, so do you think this is, likely to make a difference this year with Sharon, I assume will be running, running the whole thing. Yes, he will. I think it'll make a huge difference just in the, in the rhythm of it for, for him. I I mean, there, there's just flow things, you know, you hit that play and you probably have your next play ready to go. I'm talking about that. ISO. you probably have your next play ready to go. And suddenly you're off, you're off the sticks, right? Uh, The other piece is, I think they'll have a better understanding of what J.J. can do, a more confidence in J.J. throwing the football heading into this season as far as play. Because remember, it took him a while to, to get that play-action game going. Part of it was J.J.'s shoulder, you know, getting it right. The other part of it was accuracy was, was kind of off. And when your running game is going like it is, you tend to lean on that. I think this year there will be more of a willingness to ride J.J., and the other part of it, and I want you guys to comment on this, J.J.'s input. You know, there, there was only so much as a first-year quarterback. You're going to be able to say, hey, let's do this, let's do that. I want this, I want that. I think, I think number nine is going to have a lot more input this year. Coach, I don't like this play. Coach, this, doesn't, this looks too messy for me. Coach, this is not going to work. I think that that, between his bond, his, his relationship with Sharon, and certainly with Kirk Campbell's, uh, input who he has a tremendous relationship with, I think you'll see JJ's uh, input offensively have an impact on this on and this offense as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I made the point that twenty five <clears throat> yards per play action is too much. It's too many yards for play action. Also, I don't think Cade McNamara is getting twenty five yards on play action plays. Like those downfield passes were on the mark and they got there fast. Like he does not they don't have to spend a lot of time going up and down in order to get to Ronnie Bell. And because of that, you know, you get that um you get that advantage. And after that it's just a race, right? Like as long as the ball's in the air, they know where to go. And they're going after the ball and it's it's just can you still beat that safety, right? So you you gained four yards at most, right? Of uh, of of space to put that in. And throwing downfield you 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 might need a yard or two, uh, and the, you need less yards. You need fewer yards if you can throw the ball the way that JJ can. So there are things in the offense that they were starting to do that, like mostly, were just JJ vamping. And I think that they can plan on things now that they weren't necessarily putting in the offense last year. We, how many hitches did Michigan throw underneath coverage? You know, you got Roman Wilson out there. This was a, a, an issue throughout the season. Roman Wilson, they have to play that guy back, right? He is fast, and he is um, he can run by safeties even when they're sitting back, especially when they're coming down the run. But man, if you know if you're trying to play cover three against that guy on the outside or something, there is no way to stay on top of him and cover beneath. And JJ can get the ball out there so fast. There's a lot of space to throw underneath the coverage that Michigan hasn't really used that much. And I was, you know. Watching how they broke down their passing plays, there's a lot more of space there that they can be operating in. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think this is uh, this this off season is interesting to to kind of hear the talk uh, about how they really feel like from a passing perspective uh, between JJ's experience and then Kirk Campbell, who I don't, I don't know much about Old Dominion football. I do know a little <laughs> bit more about about Penn State and. They had some explosiveness under under Moorhead uh, through the air. That it sounds like they feel like uh, the input that that Kirk Campbell would be able to bring over from that is going to help kind of expand and, and mechanics. That's the other piece that I wanted to get to. That's that was was at uh, top of my top of mind. Repeatable mechanics for for JJ. That was a thing last year. Uh, I think it was a a focus of his. Uh, one of the reasons why he wanted Kirk Campbell to be the quarterback's coach is the feeling that from a technical standpoint, he could be more sound, he could be more consistent. And so that could be another part, Brian, of, of the improvement offensively is like there were just some times where he just missed because of mechanics. He would drive board just crazy. 
I think that's going to be less of an issue this year uh, with, with JJ because of who's coaching him as the quarterback's coach. Well, and also just experience. I mean, people tend to forget that that's a second year player, right? Like <clears throat> back in the day, that guy would be given the John Navarre training wheels. <laughs> and while it was a run heavy offense, I don't think that was the case. I don't think he had the training wheels on. I think it was just you have that offensive line, you have Blake Corum, you have Donovan Edwards. Like they didn't need to throw the ball in most of the games they were in. And then the ones where they did, like JJ is hitting things downfield. Now, you know, he did a really good job of not throwing interceptable passes last year until the last game. Um, so yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like you might see a little bit more of that this year just because they're going to be a little bit more open. But, I mean, the other part of it is that teams were playing Michigan so soft the whole year. Like, I, I, was, I was charting these games, and I just could not believe that teams were leaving two safeties back against Blake frickin' Corum. Like, like, I mean, Iowa did it. Like, the first first drive against Iowa, Michigan just ripping off five, six yards every carry. I was like, what is – you're in the red zone now. Are you going to get aggressive? Nope. So, <laughs> you know, I think for whatever reason, teams just did not want to come up against Michigan until very late in the year, and then we saw what happened. Now, if teams get more aggressive this year because they feel like they don't want to get ground down, I think J.J. is going to be up to the task. Yeah, I don't think teams uh... – are going to be able to play too high against Michigan with any regularity and be satisfied with the outcomes. I think that the offensive line is just going to grind, grind that down. And with, and with the quality Michigan has in running back, uh, that feels like a losing proposition. I think it's likely you're going to see more TCU than Iowa. You're going to see teams pressuring the line of scrimmage with their safeties more. Uh, I, 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 it's hard for me to envision a game against most or maybe all the teams Michigan play where they where they play too high and and just say okay run it. Uh, I don't see that. Yeah, uh, I, and understand what the safety's doing a lot of times. But they, I mean, that nose tackle was just getting killed against TCU every single <laughs> time. Like you know, Olu and Zinter, you're Keegan. You're like, where are those guys? Right? How are they? Why are they not just blowing these guys away? They were. They were blowing through that nose tackle, moving him a yard out of where he wanted to be, getting down to the linebacker. But what that um, that safety does, he replaces a linebacker. So another linebacker is now shooting into the interior. And that did open up some things on the outside, and Donovan Edwards was able to make some plays out there. Uh, and I think Illinois played that way to a degree because that's the way Illinois plays. And then Ohio State tried it, and Ohio State felt like they had some success, but you know they got hit by the normal amount of, of, uh, of big plays. And Brian made a point earlier about TCU that like they also kind of got hit by the normal amount of big plays. I think we could have called a few more of them, uh, but they you know they opened themselves up to that play action, and Michigan probably could have scored a lot more points um, just based off of the structure of their 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 defense. I think, but other teams are going to look at that and say you know TCU won, and not really look at the the more of the details. They're going to say Ohio State had high success rate. They're going to see that Illinois had high success rate. And I think they're going to come at us. And then you have Kirk Campbell, who was part of the bombs over Baghdad offense. Do you remember that offense? Do you remember like, when people, like, the, the internet loved that offense because they were just chucking it down the field all the time. And that was a reaction to the way that Penn State played, the way that they used their quarterback in the running game a lot. And it did... You know, it, it beat the crap out of Trace McSorley. He was, you know, he, he they had they had to put Penn State uh, quarterbacks back together at the end of the season because they take on so much damage. But there is a middle ground. Like I don't think you need to do that against Rutgers necessarily, but you do need to start planning JJ's legs into your offense. And you certainly can't do like run fakes. You can't r pretend to have him part of your offense and not use him because teams are already wise to that. And there are a couple more plays in this game. It's just. Frustrating me throughout 2021, too, that they, they have these plays that the Ravens run with Lamar Jackson uh, that look like a zone read, but it's not. It's really just a called run. And all that does is it gives them a free hitter that you're not reading and not reacting to. So so two instances, the, the pick sixes, that sort of bring together uh, the piece of it that I was talking about, about Jay. I was looking for a play while you guys were, were talking. First pick six, right? He... I remember hearing the commentary uh, and they they didn't, I think, adequately point out that 
look, the play was open. He just he was late. He was late because yeah, of the hitch step. Mm-hmm. It was open, and it was just footwork. It was strictly footwork. Remember talking to Devin about it? He said, man, he had a hitch step. And I remember watching, I want to say, was it the very next week, Cincinnati versus Buffalo in the playoffs? And it was the same play, and Joe Burrow throws the same ball without a hitch step. Same coverage, and it's right there, right? So this is the kind of mechanical thing that a, a Kirk Campbell can help fix. Get rid of thing as simple as, hey, he takes one extra step, makes the throw late. You wipe that out, that's a completion. The other piece of it was the second pick six was a play I know he didn't like. It was a play <laughs> that I know that in practice he didn't like. <laughs> and so to be able to come out this year with, with all that time on task, you know, as a quarterback under his belt and be able to say, hey, you know what, coach, this I don't like this play. Too messy. You know what? I don't want to throw that. That's not going to be in the playbook, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> because you, now, you know, there's a there's a little more to it. Listening to listening to, to, to J.J., listen to your quarterback with experience, listen to your quarterback who's been through the war, listen to your quarterback who can point to it and say, coach, remember I said I didn't like that play <laughs> kind of thing. So these are these are all reasons to think that we're going to see a better offense, a better passing game uh, this year. And, and I definitely think uh, Sharon with his you know, to be able to work out some things. And one of the interesting things talking to play callers guys and, you know, they all have a, a, an idea of what they're going to do before they do it. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that when they're a coordinator and you realize, or they realize once they get in there and you, you got to cater what you want to do to what your guys can do. And that's always a journey that I think it takes some experience for them to get. Now, Sharon has kind of worked that out. I think he has the confidence. I think he's going to be ready to go. Yeah, I, I want to make the point that you know the 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 fact that those were picks were issues. You know, he was a bad read. He he didn't feel comfortable in the uh, and didn't really understand where the defense was and how they were playing it. And it was just a bad. The second one was just a bad read. And the first one, you're absolutely right. He was just laid on the throw because of his footwork. Right. Those kinds of mistakes happen all the time to quarterbacks, all the freaking time in college football, and they usually don't end up as pick sixes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, when right. you look at this game, you, you do have to put some you know perspective on it because they were just maximally punished, right? Like te- teams run, um, if you run the Philly special, most likely you're just thrown out of the back of the end zone and they get the and TCU gets the ball on the two yard line, and then <coughs> that was another turnover. That's another huge po- like yeah, expected point swing, and that was another piece of this game that we just got to and. I, I don't think you can look at a TCU game and say like that's going to tell you what next season's like. You got to look at the whole season and how the things and how things worked. And there was a disjointedness in the way that Michigan's offense ran. And I think Sam probably hit it on the head there. It's like you know if you're Sharon Moore and you're calling a couple plays and you're starting to get a feel of what TCU wants to do to you, and then all of a sudden, play, you know, you, the microphone gets taken away from you and you got to wait. <laughs> For you know, twenty minutes of real time or whatever it is until the ball's in your hands again to like execute it, you've kind of lost that feel. You've kind of lost that flow. Uh, and for a first-time offensive coordinator, it's probably not as easy for him to pick that up as someone who's just like, okay, I you know I've done this a hundred times. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, let's get to a break. A lot more to get to. I know there are some questions in the in the chat. Uh, that we want to get to as well. So much more on the other side. Stay tuned for more MGO Ball Roundtable here on Sports Talk 1050 WTKA, the ticket. All right, so here is one. Do you guys yeah. see Tyler Morris being a breakout player this year, or do we see more attempts for Clemens or O'Leary? Um, uh, I'm on the I Tyler do, Morris train. because I so. What I've noticed is that when he's on the field are like very high leverage situations. And I, I, I can't remember. I There's plenty of like Lloyd Carr wide receivers you can name who are out there to block their freshman year, right? Like, hey, we got this Braylon Edwards kids, this Braylon Edwards kid. Let's have him block, right? Um, and Morris was, at, but they would not be out there the the as true freshmen on major major high leverage plays. You have your big third down against Rutgers before that game gets out of hand, and who do they go to? They go to Tyler Morris. That play was designed for Tyler Morris, like that. I, and, and when I scouted that guy, I was like, this dude is, they're sleeping on this guy because he probably was injured and that was the, yeah. that knocked him down. Big fan of that. Well, he, he's, uh, he has the benefit of having great chemistry with the quarterback coming in, right? That's JJ's dude. They're, they're giving, 
Well, yeah, AJ Henning uh, did too, so that doesn't necessarily. Well, I mean, this is this even different. It's yeah. different on this. I mean, that's his high school teammate. Uh-huh. I mean, they that's like his receiver, receiver, mm-hmm. and he's an actual receiver. Is they 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 use yeah. AJ as more of a gadget guy. Yeah, uh, they they see Tyler as more of a Ronnie Bell type, mm-hmm. and so uh, it'll be interesting to see his maturation. I would I would go Tyler, then O'Leary, then Clemens. At least right now, Ooh. how I'm looking at. Uh, likely impact this coming season. Um, I think that there, I think we're probably uh, maybe a year away from from Darius kind of being a breakout guy. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking for him to maybe be the breakout guy next year, and and for Tyler to be the breakout guy this year. Speaking of Lloyd, I like them all. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I I kind of agree with you, Sam. I think Tyler then O'Leary. I think O'Leary's going to catch balls this year. I do too. Yeah. I do too. So, you know, uh, get some other ones. All right, notes. You know, this is going to be. This is going to be. Um, you know, he actually looked better. Khalil Mullings actually looked better in the in the spring game. Looked more comfortable running the football. I, I think it was. Uh, man, they they just hadn't developed the younger running backs to the point where they trusted them enough in that situation. Because that's a that's a tough spot to to put Mullings in. I mean, he had just had that that strong uh, showing. Uh, relative in, in short action against uh, Ohio State, and I think that kind of talk about fool's gold, kind of like that ISO. It kind of makes you think that man, this is not too big a moment, but man, in a couple crucial situations there in the red zone, I, you know, as much as you you put the mistake on him, I mean, just even being in that situation is indicative of of just not being able to come farther far enough along with some of the younger running backs that they were. They were developing Back in about thirty they seconds. Be, they won't be in that situation this year. I think. Yeah. I I mean it's it's one situation. Fumbles happen. Fumbles happen on fullback dives all the time. That's what that play was. The fullback dive because you don't have the time as a fullback to come down and like zoom in on where the ball is. Right. It snap in your hands almost immediately. And that play, I, an NFL guy told me this. That play has a higher fumble rate than almost any other play in football. Because yeah. uh, of the because how fast you're... So, I mean, you go back to the days when they would run that all the time, when, like, you know, you had Veer offenses, Bose offenses, right? Those those guys would practice that a gazillion times before they would put a fullback in. And I think this is just part of, like, the fact we didn't have a fullback this year. We haven't had somebody practicing that play. Because yeah. the fact that Khalid Hill could go in there... Back on radio in about 10 that seconds. Play, that was a skill that Khalid Hill developed... And they, you could trust him to get that ball and go in there. So yeah, I mean, see, that, that came like after that. that came after the Come on back on radio guys. And we are back, folks, here on the Michigan Insider Sports Talk 1050 WTKA online at WTKA.com. Uh during the break we were talking about the the uh the errors, the early you call them turnovers, at, uh, accurately so, uh Brian. That's what those uh those red zone woes were. Uh you had the fumble and then the Philly special on the on the other side, that was blown up because you had a, a player, the blocker, go the wrong way on it. Is and, that what happened? They actually, uh, the guy actually went the wrong way. Went the wrong way. Went the. That wrong makes way sense. On <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what happened. Well, well the worst, the worst part of those two plays was the fact that okay, you didn't get a touchdown, but also you didn't even get that drive from the opposition that starts at the one or two yard line. Yeah, and those are often run, run try to get a first down bad punt. So those were is even worse than getting no points on two trips inside the five. It is worse than that. So yeah, I mean, you look at that game and you, you look at the fancy stats for it, and there are four different plays in that game that are worth more than seven points of expectation, and all of them went TCU's way. So yeah, so, yeah, so you right. got four, I'm just saying, so you got four plays that cost Michigan, I don't know, 27 28 points yeah uh that's you know yeah you know, that's 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 profound in the outcome of a game hey so you know i'm convinced and uh you can pick up on this brian or seth i'm convinced that this was the game that uh made jim harbaugh go get another uh make a change at linebacker coach i don't think it was just chris mm-hmm. partridge being available 
Um, I think it was. I, I think it was this game. <laughs> uh, I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I, I mean, I don't think that the linebackers were particularly. They didn't stand out as like problems to me in this game. Um, that like we have a 76 yard touchdown on third and seven where you get man to man coverage and DJ Turner, one of the fastest guys in the country, gets beat to the outside. You know, they they took some bad gambles at bad times, but I mean, they I, I thought Junior Colson kind of had a year where I wanted him to make more progress than he did, but I thought uh, you know Barrett coming through and being a, a guy you can start and be pretty decent with. I thought that was an accomplishment. So, I mean, I'm sure Chris Partridge is a good coach, but to me, I didn't feel like the linebacker level was like a glaring issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what did I, you think, Seth? I, I, so the thing about Hilo is that, you know, now we're replacing our, you know, the C plus coaches because we, Michigan did not have a, a bad coach on that staff. No, they didn't. Yeah, and and like I'm doing the recruiting profiles. I've actually been in the, in the middle of the linebackers right now, and like he did some work on the recruiting trail too. So like he's not one of those guys who is not carrying his weight. I think though, linebacker is really hard, and teaching linebacker <laughs> is probably not one of the easiest jobs. And you can go out there, and there's some really good linebacker coaches, and they they have jobs for like 30 years, right? You remember that guy from Wisconsin who was there like until they named the state after him or something. They, that <laughs> That's that's how long you have to teach linebacker before you're uh, you're, you're that good at it. Um, I think Partridge is maybe one of the few coaches out there who has that ability to just kind of get through to guys. Uh, and Colson, yeah, I mean this is his sophomore year. He's been starting two seasons. I just watched a whole bunch of film about on on Ernest Houseman and how he came along over the course of last year. And I kind of think linebackers coach was not a problem for Nebraska. They I think they had a pretty good linebackers coach there too. So maybe, yeah, I think that he, maybe somebody who was more experienced at it, who's been just coaching it longer, would know more what to do. Michael Barrett is a huge success story, though. The, from where he came, where he was just, he looked like a freshman out there. Uh, and then all of a sudden, now by the end of the season, he was a good linebacker, full stop. They, they didn't have anybody else, though. So those guys would get banged up. Those guys, would, Junior Colson would make a mistake, and you can't really pull him off the field and talk to him because if you do that, you're putting out a true freshman or, or Mullings. Like, they didn't have other options to go to besides those guys. So, I, In, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it wasn't so much a problem with Hilo as it was they had the opportunity to get a person they perceived as a superstar and had been a superstar in the program before, both from a recruiting point of view and a coaching point of view. Now, I did hear one thing from inside of the uh, program that maybe George Hilo was just too nice of a person. And that, I and that, that. I mean, <laughs> and, uh, and in the sense that, he, he liked to give positive reinforcement, but he really was reticent to say, hey, you made a mistake here. Now, that's just something I heard from yeah. in, inside, but I don't know how much you weight know, to put on that. I like what Craig, I like what Seth said. Yeah. Uh, he said, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of average at the low. The low end was average, average to good coaches across mm -hmm. the board. Uh, and Michigan is to the place now where you can. You can go from average to to really good. You can replace the average guys. Mm -hmm. so I think George Hilo wa was a good coach, but you get in the playoffs and being able to have an elite coach in in a, a situation like that can make the difference. Because I tell you, watching this game with Vance, it I mean, it, he was on the linebackers the whole break. Really? Yeah. yeah, he was on the linebackers the whole. I mean, break. I got I got a the biggest mistake of the year was Junior Colson on that 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 long run. Where he just completely runs out of his gap, and then there's no. And I watched it play a bunch of times. You're like, okay, maybe a safety was supposed to replace there or something like that. No, it was just Junior Colson identified the wrong gap. But like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm okay with calling Hilo the Cade McNamara of the coaching staff. <laughs> like that's. Yeah, I mean, you have a, a good guy, but yeah. you know, if you want to be able to get over the hump, be championship level, and and you got to play. You went from a playoff level coach, and you think you you got to a championship level coach. That's what you you leveled up. You leveled up, and you know, will that be the difference? In addition to having you add an Ernest Houseman to the mix, right? You have a more experienced Junior Colson, even 
Uh, because remember last year, he's settling into a big-time role as the guy at the linebacker position. You feel like you got more depth. Jimmy Rolder is coming along. They like where Michael Pollard is. Yeah, you just feel like they're going to be deeper at the linebacker position than they than they were last year. So if a guy is struggling, if a guy is making mistakes on the field, now you have an alternative. I don't think they had any alternatives last year. That they they really could have used Nikai Hill Green last yeah, year. Yeah, they could. And n- now you can afford to lose Nikai Hill Green, right? Like that guy's going to Charlotte, and it's like, okay, you know, here you go, Biff. <laughs> you can have you can have a really good linebacker here, and and you know, let's, let's get healed up or whatnot. But like that's the, the huge, huge difference in the depth they have. Um, can we talk about Ernest Hausman a bit? Because I think this is the Olu of the sea of uh, the year. He is a better prospect than I think we're. I I didn't even realize it. I thought when we originally got him that like, okay, good, we've got a third linebacker. He was a true freshman last year. He'll get to spend some time in the second team, get to get some rotations, play next to Rolder. Then he and Rolder will be the next guys. He is definitely above Rolder. He is. He is up there with Barrett and Colson, and I don't know if those guys are going to be able to start every game next year because you know maybe maybe Barrett can play some some Viper again. I know that that kind of fell out of the defense last year because we couldn't afford to. Um, so they they might have some three linebacker sets next year, either three three five or you know pull the pull the nickel. So we have linebackers again, and Houseman might be the best of them. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all comes together. Uh, there were some some other things. Uh, it, uh, by the way, let's let's go ahead and, and talk about the, uh, the the preview you guys wa- working on. Uh, Hell to the victors. victors. Yeah, yeah, it's it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, right, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah just throw throw we're, the plug in. We're yeah. Right now we're uh, we're going through all the rosters because you know we we get written a lot of the um, opponent previews as we normally do right after the spring games and forgot that. Certain opponents can lose their entire rosters after the spring game. For example, <laughs> Michigan State's entire yes, yeah. like yeah. that section, just rip it out. <laughs> yeah, how about how about the talk being that Keon Coleman was in the portal because he didn't he he wasn't a Peyton Thorne fan. Peyton Thorne <clears throat> transfers to Auburn, and then Keon Coleman says he's gonna visit Auburn. Got to blow it up that old that old narrative that. He was out because he didn't really he didn't really like the quarterback. Seems like that wasn't true. I mean, that's the most pathetic spin I think I can remember. Because <laughs> like, who got drafted in the second round this year? Jaden Reed. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, oh, this guy wants to go to the NFL, so he can't be with the quarterback who got this guy in the second round. Like, come on, bro. Maybe like, they they missed the word coach in there. Quarterback coach. I mean, uh, <laughs> he doesn't like. Yeah, I mean, I just. You know, th- there's no loyalty at that program. There's no thought that Michigan State is something other than just a way, like a halfway house for transfers. And so <laughs> you got that coming, you got guys coming, but then you got guys going too. And, I, you know, I, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there that year. So uh, opinion question, this is, this is not getting uh, back into the Hunter uh, question that we've dissected or a topic that we've dissected a ton. Uh, obviously, he came out and lent, uh, you know, voice to what we've been hearing about NIL being the major factor for him. We knew that. I'm curious, do you guys, do you guys sense that while NIL has made some progress, that NIL for basketball is behind NIL for football? And do you see, if you believe that's the case, do you see it being on the horizon that NIL for basketball catches up? Well, I think it's a little bit different in basketball because in football, you got 25 guys in a class and outside of some five-star quarterback types, you know, you're not really hearing about these like big deals and basketball, much smaller rosters, much easier to get one specific guy, a big deal. And also Kentucky and Kansas exist. So, but I mean, frankly, I don't buy what Hunter is saying. Cause like he showed up at media day last year, like talking about his new Ford Bronco and wearing like two carat diamond earrings. That money came from somewhere. <laughs> I don't, did he just, just get lucky in a poker tournament? I don't think so. So, I mean, I don't necessarily buy that whole thing. I think it's just Hunter being Hunter. And, you know, I feel you like don't buy what that he didn't make six figures. I don't buy that at all. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how he's counting it. I can tell uh, you from being in a similar business that revenue last year for basketball did not meet expectations. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> the way the season panned out, if you're making your money based off of some of these NIL deals, and I think that's probably what he's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, some of the money that passes hands and some of the ways that we compensate athletes. Like, when I was working at Pizza Bob's, they had, you know, we give them free subs, except for you, Drew Henson. You got your Yankees money. Uh, but, like, the... The, the, there's that, right? And the way that players get compensated is a little bit amorphous. The actual NIL deals that he was on, that he had, probably we guessed that they would be worth X amount. And I can certainly imagine them coming in well under the expectations because last year's season came in way under expectations and the excitement wasn't there and people weren't responding the way they were. And people were not super enthralled with... Hunter Dickinson last year, like he, there, there was not a sense among the fan base that like this is a superstar. Now people who knew basketball knew how important he was to the team, and he had a much better second half of the season. But I don't think that was the sense among the John Q fans and among the kind of people who would be really excited for like let's say a Blake Corum and go put some nil money somewhere, right? You know, I don't know how truthful Hunter was being, but I feel a little differently than Brian. I kind of liked what Hunter said in that if he, he said, look, I know this is selfish. Eh, I'm not so sure that how, how selfish it is, but he goes, I, I know this is selfish, but I was making less than six figures at Michigan. Who knows how he counts that six figures, but I was making less than six figures and I'm making more someplace else. And so I decided, I think he's telling us, uh, you know, the reality. I'm not going to be an NBA star. I'm not going to make big dollars in the NBA. That's what everyone's telling me. It's probably the truth. So I'm going to take my next two years, which I think he has, and I'm going to make money. And the best money deal I had was at Kansas. And that's pretty much what he said. And to me, I felt better about him because for a change, someone was actually giving us the real, you know, the real deal, which is Michigan was fine. I liked it here. I liked the coaches. I liked the culture. I, w I didn't like the money. And I, and I get a lot more of it at Kansas. I mean, that's what he said. And, and to me, uh, congratulations, because we should hear more of that as, as opposed to the sort of vague namby-pamby stuff we <laughs> ordinarily hear. So good I, for you, Hunter. But he, but he did that too. <laughs> well, he did both, and then right. he re, and then he retrenched. And, and we talked about this last week. You're right. He did this sort of soft shoe that we all get sick of, and 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 we were frustrated with that last week. But in the last seven days, he said something else. Yeah, you know what I think happened is he thought mm -hmm. that his statement would pacify some people. I think it. I think yeah. he thought it would engender some. Uh, some appreciation or goodwill or yeah. well wishes. Did and you it meet any that. Michigan fans while you were here, Hunter Dickinson? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it did do that. It, but he figured, no, I, I give him credit though, Sam. No, I, I wish you well, Hunter. They <laughs> were you, like, get, good, did you learn the first rich. thing about this fan base? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but like, he, <laughs> you weren't that good anyway. He's like, golly, man. <laughs> so he retrenched. He, so he retrenched and said, okay, the soft shoe doesn't work. How about the truth? And and I think that's that's what he said, what he gave us. And I, I understand why people might not like Hunter. There are reasons for that, but you know he's one hell of admit, a college player. Look, and, and let me yeah, let me yeah. disclosure. I mean, this I, I like the dude, so uh, yeah, that, that does, I do too. That so. does color my perception of it. So I, and I admit that. So mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it was the truth. Who did I mean? I, whatever. Maybe the numbers are fudged or whatever, but yeah. it is the truth that. Kansas is just going to have the conversation. When you sit down to go to Kansas, they're not going to say, oh, we project you're going to make so much money with your NIL deals. Okay? When you sit down with Kansas, they're going to say, here's the offer. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. The FBI has tapes of this. <laughs> and, and look, look, the FBI has a case, and Bill Self has a lifetime contract. Doesn't even matter if the he's, FBI looks he's into the, it. He's the second... Best paid basketball coach in the country after Calipari. He's number two. He's making more than Tom Izzo. <laughs> Good gig if you can get it, man. So, yeah, he, he went. That's why it was once Kansas was when, – when you saw Kansas and Kentucky, 
any talk of Michigan coming up with some kind of NIL plan to get like that's out the window. Yeah. There's nothing they're going to come up with that's going to match that, which gets back to my original question. Look, Kansas and Kentucky are always going to be above and beyond. Do you guys see on the horizon in the near future, Michigan being able to maybe not beat Kentucky and Kansas regularly, but we see on the football side of things, they've progressed enough with NIL for it not to be a, a tether. Like they, they are automatically out with the top guys anymore because of NIL. They can at least be in the game. Do you think that we are close to seeing that be the case on the basketball side of things, or is that far off in the distance? I don't know. I mean, you need to ask various Michigan alums who are richer than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, what is what is Stephen Ross doing? We got you got what are you you're just gonna die with all the money? <laughs> Don't give it to some basketball players. <laughs> you know, part of me wonders if it's going to come down to, you know, is it going to be basically your your coach, basically be Jawan kind of calling on the Steve Ross and be like, look, man, I need you to do this, Steve. I don't know. I don't know his relationships with, with various donors, but that in this day and age, that might be what it is. Like you, you got to be as the coach telling Whoever your big money benefactor is, look, I need you to get on the horse, get on the horn. We got to get some things, get some things going out. Um, I, I don't know if if that is uh, if that is something that is about to happen. But I, I to your point, Brian, uh, I have not heard as much about the 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 effort on the basketball side of things as we have in football. That's just the, that's just the fact of the matter. It feels to me like there's a, a, a gap there with how much of a factor maybe the collective effort is with uh, with football and basketball. There, I mean, once you're getting into the mega donors, now you're talking about personalities. You're, ter- ta- you're not necessarily looking at what, you know, here's what our needs are, here's what our system needs to be. We're not talking about structure anymore. Now we're talking about who are the individuals who have that kind of money, who can donate it, and who want to be part of the program. And... Most schools only have one or two guys like that. Michigan may have six or seven guys like that. And then you have that next rung down of people who are um, longtime donors, but even their personalities have a lot to do with it and takes a lot of handholding and a lot of like talking to these people and getting their sense. And they have, they're not necessarily with the fan base as far as how they see paying players. And that has been a difference with Michigan versus everybody else for a long time. And that's a piece that I don't know if you can just change overnight. Now, the school can think in different ways. The way that, you know, the, the way the, the program wants to run can change. And I think it has changed. But it's very hard to take, you know, the big six or the big 60 Michigan donors and convert them from bow thinking to modern thinking. And you don't have to have that happen at Auburn. You don't have to convert them at LSU. You don't have to go to the Kansas boosters and be like, we're going to do things differently now. They've already got that established. So when you're talking about structural issues, you also have to just consider these are human beings who make decisions based off of you know their worldview, and that hasn't necessarily changed as quickly as we thought it would. Interesting. I mean, it, it, it's a good point. I hadn't thought of it. I mean, other, some other programs don't really have to change because that's what they've been doing all along. <laughs> right. You right. know, and so it's an easier transition into the new world. So, uh, yeah. And, and it's not like everyone's the same way, right? Like Michigan right. has a lot of former mm-hmm. football players who've done really well and they are 100% on board. They've been leading this charge. Mm-hmm. To, uh, yeah. to to shift, so it's not like we're, it's not like nothing going on. There's a lot so of have going you got, on. A lot of people do care a lot. Think, think, so have you guys noticed the, the the success that Michigan State's having on a recruiting trail? Basketball. Uh, oh, basketball. Yeah, basketball. Yeah, yeah. They they'll have they should have a good team next year because their backcourt is back and they're getting young big guys who are highly regarded. You know, five star guy and yeah, they, in they, the program. So Izzo, Izzo has has figured out a way uh, to to get it back rolling on a recruiting trail. Yeah. Uh, that is that is noteworthy, and so I think an analysis is it just you know they're they just figured out to become how to become better recruit. I I don't know. I haven't looked at it hard enough, but it definitely stands out that 
they're starting to pull in some guys. Well, the I, I mean, I would be surprised if you're getting a five-star guy saying, oh, come in here and we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would be a little surprised that, that it was just that. Yeah. So <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Fellas, it is always an absolute blast. Any of you guys uh, surprised that Bob Huggins is still in the job? Uh, <laughs> right, right. Not, not surprised either. Uh, billion dollar reduction in salary, year to year contract. He's sixty nine years old. He's coaching year to year anyway, right? Isn't that pretty much how it goes? And a million dollars less in West Virginia, he's still making three million dollars a year. I think he's fine. So, and what I didn't know is Gordon Gee is the president of West Virginia. Yeah, I, I didn't know that either until I saw this story come out. And I thought, oh, yeah, he's, his job is secure because <laughs> because Gordon's not in charge. We know that one. Uh, and at West Virginia, you know, it's probably Huggins who's actually in charge of the entire entire program. Yeah. Morgantown's so. finest. I had to get that in on the way out. Always a blast with you guys here on the MGO blog roundtable. Uh, folks, be sure to check back in uh, next week for next week's MGO Blog Roundtable. In the meantime, again, don't forget Wolverine Weekend, June 9th through the 11th. If you have not signed up, Junior Colson, Donovan Edwards, Will Johnson, and Colston Loveland, the four players that are going to be up there. Great dinner program. going to be breaking down plays in front of a live audience. You'll be able to ask questions. Of course, rub shoulders with them on the golf course for the golf outing as well. Going to be a great weekend up at Grand Trappers Resort and Spa. Sign up at GrandTrappersResort.com. You got to get out of here. We'll see you next week or tomorrow here on the Michigan Insider. Sports Talk 1050, WTKA, The Ticket, Ann Arbor, Accumulus Station.